We're grateful for your presence. We're always thankful for the opportunity to be together. We're thankful for our Sunday evening service, the songs that we are privileged to sing together, the prayers that are offered, and the opportunity to study and reflect upon God's Word. We're going to be looking at Psalm 1, 1 through 3, and the theme of our study tonight, On the Road to a Blessed Life. All of us want to enjoy blessings in life, and we want to find success in life. And based on what the psalmist says in the first psalm, true blessings and success in life are found in following the Lord. There are a lot of people in our world today, they're looking for success and happiness and contentment. They want to be blessed and yet, sadly, they go to all the wrong places, they examine all the wrong things. As a result of that, there is a sense of emptiness or futility. And so in Psalm 1, in a very concise way, the psalmist here talks about how we can get on the road to a blessed life, to a happy life, to a life of success. And so I want to begin tonight by talking, first of all, about the pathway of a believer. The psalmist begins by talking about emphasizing the blessed or the happy man. And he tells us in the first place that the happy or the blessed man is somebody who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor do they stand in the path of sinners, nor do they sit in the seat of the scornful. Let me just talk for a minute or two about the direction that a believer chooses in life. I would begin by emphasizing the fact that the godly do not believe like the ungodly. Or, to put it another way, the righteous do not believe like the unrighteous. There is a standard by which we can ascertain what is right and wrong, what is truth or error, what is good and evil. The psalmist said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. It's interesting to watch television, to listen to the radio, to read a magazine, and one of the things that is common to each and everything that I've just mentioned is the fact that you will see, hear, or read multiple advertisements. Advertisers trying to encourage you to buy something or to buy into something, or to do something, or to act upon something. What we, what we ought to understand and what we really need to understand is that what the world is trying to sell, we're not buying. Now I understand that there are some things that advertisers peddle that are good and helpful and certainly they have bettered those of us who belong to the human family. But when I say we're not buying what the world is selling, 
We have to understand that the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the devil is the god of this age. And the devil is seeking to impose his will and his ways upon those of us who belong to the human family. And so the standard or the litmus test by which we discern what's right and wrong, truth and error, good and bad, is God's word. For example, Jesus said in Mark 4, verse 24, take heed what you hear. We ought to be attentive to what we hear and listen with a discerning ear. We ought to watch with a discerning eye. We ought to read again with a discerning eye. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul said, prove all things or test all things. Hold fast that which is good. That would imply that there are some things that are not good. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, one of the byproducts of knowing the will of God and understanding God's word is that it enables us to discern between good and evil. And so there are a lot of things that are being peddled and being pushed upon those of us that belong to the human family that after a careful analysis of God's word, we say, you know what? We just can't accept that. There are a lot of people in our world today, I mentioned this in our lesson earlier today, that will tell us that we are the products of evolution, that there is no God. Well, the world itself, I think, depicts that there's a designer. When you step out and see the sun, the moon, the stars, and you think about how there is symmetry and balance in our solar system, in our universe, can't be by chance. The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And so yes, the world lends evidence to an almighty God. And so we don't necessarily believe everything that we hear particularly as it relates to our origin or the origin of our universe. But there's a second thing that I want you to see in our study, and that is the godly do not belong with the ungodly. The psalmist said that the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. It's not because we're trying to be arrogant or holier than thou. It's not because we're better than other people, but rather we choose to associate with people, as Peter would say, of like precious faith. Because you see, there's a lot to be said about associating with people that think like we think and act like we act and do things that we do. We have common goals and aspirations. Ultimately, we want to go to heaven, don't we? Solomon in the book of Proverbs, and there are a lot of nuggets of truth in Proverbs, 31 chapters. Solomon had a lot to say, or he had some things to say, about choosing the kind of people with whom we interact on a regular basis. He would say in Proverbs chapter 13, that those who walk with wise people or wise men will be wise. 
But he said, a companion of fools will be destroyed. Back in chapter 12, verse 26. Again, Solomon said, in the long ago, the righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked leads them astray. All he's saying is we have to protect or guard ourselves from unholy alliances. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, didn't Jesus associate with sinful people? Yes, he did. But he associated with those people in an effort to better their lives. He wasn't scared by them. He didn't think that they were worthless human beings. But rather, he reached out to those people in love. He was compassionate and kind. And he sought to make a difference in their lives. And so, what we want to do as Christians is strive to use our influence for the betterment of the human family. Our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, we want to try to associate with people that will help build our faith, that will provide us with a Christian example, encouraging us to do things that are wholesome and right and pure in life. And then there are the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. He said, be not deceived. Evil companionship corrupts good morals. And so again, just protecting our relationships here upon this earth. One other thing that I might throw in very quickly is that the godly do not behave like the ungodly. We understand that our king... Our Lord is Jesus Christ. He governs every move. He governs every action. He is to govern every thought. If Jesus is the Lord of my life, and I'm striving to the best of my ability to implement His will and His ways into my life, then I'm going to develop the mind of Christ. And I'm not going to act like people in the world. One of the things that Paul cautioned against in Romans chapter 12 was conformity to the world. He said, be not conformed to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is the mind renewed? How do we somehow insulate ourselves from the influences and the moldings of the world? reading and studying and meditating on the truth of Almighty God. Of striving to develop the mind of Christ. You remember Paul in Philippians chapter 2 when he said, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus? Developing the mind of Christ. But there's a second thing I want you to see found in verse 2. It has to do with the ponderings of a believer. First, let me just point out the delight of the psalmist. Here's what he said. His delight is in the law of the Lord. I can just picture in my mind that psalmist. I think about David, a shepherd. And I think about that shepherd boy out watching the sheep and reflecting upon the handiwork of God and the goodness of God and the mercies of God and the love of God. The Bible tells us 
but he loves the law of God. Over in Psalm 119, in verse 97, the psalmist said, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Think about that for a minute. The psalmist realized there was great value in this book. And he said he meditated on it day and night. We ought to grow to love God's Word more and more. Why? Because it is the Christian compass. This is the only book that I know that can safely guide us from life here on earth to heaven above. When you love the Word of God, there are some things that, that really come to benefit you. Let me just suggest three things. First of all, God's Word will properly guide you. Jeremiah in the long ago said, O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. We need a, a guide. We need someone or something to guide us safely through earth. What's that going to be? It's going to be God's word. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119, 105. He said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. At night, we turn lights on, don't we? And lights dispel darkness. The world, as John would say in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, is engulfed in darkness, shrouded in darkness. Jesus said that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light. So we're in a world that is dominated by darkness. It's under, really, the influence of the God of this age who has blinded the minds of them which believe not. And so we open the Word of God and there is light and direction. The psalmist in the long ago said, Send out your truth and your light. Can you imagine driving at night without your lights on? In my hometown, there are two mountains, Signal Mountain and Lookout Mountain. I wouldn't advise anyone to drive up or down either of those mountains with their lights off at night. You know why? Because it is extremely dangerous. Those winding mountain roads, if you don't have your lights on and if you're not careful, you'll have a bad accident. So all I'm saying is that God's Word can properly and effectively guide us. Secondly, it powerfully guards. How can we somehow insulate ourselves from the counsel of the world? I mean, here, here's the world. The world's saying, this is what you need. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to buy into. You need to be like this or be like that. So how do we somehow insulate ourselves from that? Well, we understand that God's Word is a very powerful tool that guards us from the things that would undermine our faith circumvent our belief system. There are a lot of folks that, for whatever reason, 
have turned a deaf ear to the Word of God. As a result of that, they have dismissed in their lives a very powerful tool. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 4 that God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word is such a powerful tool. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul talked about the Christian armor? And he said, as a, as a Christian soldier, you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That sword is an offensive weapon and a defensive weapon. And so we take this Word and we guard our lives. Think about what the psalmist said in Psalm 119.11. He said, Your Word have I hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil? In Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, three times the devil came to him and sought to tempt him. Each and every time Jesus responded with the same phrase, it is written. God's word's powerful. Now I know that there are a lot of folks that dismiss it and wave it off and say, you know what, it's just a bunch of fairy tales and fables and all this kind of stuff. Let me tell you what, it's not either. You tell me how a book over a period of some 15 to 16 centuries could come into being penned by some 40 different writers and each and every writer pointing to one thing, God's plan of redemption, the salvation of the human family. The Old Testament ties in beautifully to the New Testament. They go hand in glove. You can't separate them. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so as you begin to read and study and integrate this, this book into your life, it'll protect you. It will safeguard you. As a matter of fact, one of the things that you will derive from it is a sense of peace. Why? Because your, your life is in harmony with this book. The psalmist said in Psalm, well, in Psalm 100, in about Psalm 160, Great peace have those who love your law. And so to know that God's word will guard. But then there's a third thing. It produces growth. As a Christian, as a child of God, we're interested in growing, aren't we? We want to grow, spiritually speaking. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 2, Peter said, As a newborn baby, or as a newborn babe in Christ, desire the sincere milk of the word. Why? That you might grow thereby. In chapter 3, verse 18 of 2 Peter, he would say, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do I grow as a child of God? I have to feed on this book. Jesus said, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so I'm taking this book, and I am nourishing my soul on it every day. If you don't eat a balanced diet, you're going to have physical problems. You're going to have a lot of problems. If you decide, you know what, I'm not eating anymore, you've got some real problems. By the same token, if you, if you come to the conclusion, I'm not going to read and study and meditate upon this book, you've got some real problems, spiritually speaking. Because you will die of malnutrition. Not physically, but spiritually. 
Remember in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer talked about those who should have been at a point in time when they could have sat down and taught others the gospel of Christ. He said, when by reason of time, you ought to be teachers. He said, you have need that someone teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. The bottom line was this. They needed somebody to go back and teach them the ABCs of Christianity. Why? Because they weren't growing. Sometimes as Christians, we fail to grow. And so how do we grow? We feed on this book. We spend time reading and studying and meditating on this book. Let me also talk just very quickly about the discoveries of the psalmist. Listen to what he said. His delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates or ponders by talking to himself. Well, how often? Day and night. Did you know that through persistent study and meditation, there are some things that seem to crystallize in our lives? Let me just share with you some things. If you'll spend time in this book every day, and I don't mean just read a chapter or two and close it and forget about it till the next day, but I mean read and study and meditate. If you'll dig deeply into this book, there are some things that you're going to find that you're going to discover not just about yourself, but you're going to discover about God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, that you'll never know, that you would never know unless you open this book. Let me suggest to you that when you meditate on this book, and I mean persistently study and reflect upon it, first of all, you're going to be challenged. And we talk about challenging situations in life, and sometimes Coaches will challenge their players to work harder, to be stronger, and to have mental and physical toughness. Let me tell you what, when you read and study this book, it's going to challenge you to the very core of your life. Listen to what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That means before anything else, you seek the kingdom and his righteousness. It means you put him first. Now that's a, that's a tall order. That is a tremendous challenge. And there are a lot of folks that when met with that challenge, you know what the bottom line is? They're not there. They haven't risen up to the challenge. The Lord's saying, look, I want you to put me before you put anything in your life. Remember Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said that we're to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. He said, this is the first and great commandment. If I love the Lord God, if I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of my heart, soul, and mind, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put him first in my life. There's not going to be anything before him. It's going to be number one. How do I know Jesus is number one in my life. Well, I know it by reading and studying this book and asking the question, do I meet the criterion set forth in Scripture about putting him first?
If I'm not involved in the work, if I'm not reading his word, if I'm not worshiping on a regular basis, then what would you conclude? Is he first? Second? Third? Fourth? What? And we have to draw those conclusions. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul said, If then you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he said, set your mind, set your affection on things above and not on things which are upon this earth. Now we talk about being challenged. If Jesus were, if he were here today in the flesh and he were involved in a quote unquote preaching ministry, what do you think he'd say? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Set your mind, set your affection on things above and not on things which are upon this earth. One of the problems that some of the people in Philippi had, according to Paul, they were minding earthly things. Paul said, in contrast to that, our citizenship, he said, it's in heaven. Whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I understand I'm challenged to put him first. Now Jesus also said, by their fruit, you'll know them in Matthew chapter 7. So I can tell by examining the fruit of my own life whether or not he's first and foremost. A second thing that comes through persistent study and meditation on the Word of God is I understand that this book will caution me. A yellow light means caution, doesn't it? A red light means stop. God's Word is intended to caution us. Sometimes people look at, at Scripture and they view it from the vantage point that it is a book that majors in you can't do this and you can't do that. You can't say this, you can't say that, you can't go here, you can't go there. Listen, when God says to be careful, there's a reason behind it. Let me just give you an example. Solomon said, wine is a mocker, and strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now, we want to be wise people, don't we? Solomon accentuates wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to use the information or knowledge that we possess, that we possess in life. So, if I say, you know what? He didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, after all, this 21st century, I can drink. I can engage in, in the consumption of alcoholic beverages. I mean, what's the harm? Everybody else is doing it. When God says you need to be careful, there's a reason behind that. Because when people drink, many, many times they do foolish things. They get involved in foolish situations. And sometimes the gravity of such is that people have lost their physical life because of alcohol. All God's saying is, look, you need to respect my ways. Does God know what he's talking about? Absolutely. There's a third thing. Through persistent study and meditation on the Word of God, there is correction. As a child, I can remember growing up, my folks corrected me and they did it a lot more than what I thought they should have done. But I know I needed it. 
And as a parent and as a grandparent, sometimes we have to correct children, don't we? We don't just let them do as they please because we understand there, have to be, there has to be parameters, guidelines, rules, if you please. Well, if my life is out of harmony with the will of God, is it not the case that this book will correct me? Remember James talks about looking into the perfect law of liberty. He compares the word to a mirror. It's a mirror of the soul. When I look in the word of God, I can look at what this book says, and then I can look at my life, and I can begin to draw some conclusions. If my life is not in harmony with the will of God, it's going to tell me. You're in the wrong here. You need to do better. You fell short here. On the other hand, if I do what's right, it's going to commend me. God's Word is intended to correct people, to get them on the right course. Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine. And then he said for correction and instruction in righteousness. Think about it for a minute. God's Word will not only correct you, but it will instruct you. What God's saying is, I'm going to put you on the right course in life, and I'm going to keep you on that right course in life. How are you going to do that? By looking at this book, studying this book, meditating upon it. And then there is a fourth thing, very quickly. And that is, through a persistent study of this book, we're going to come to understand that there are some commandments that must be honored. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus began His earthly ministry, so to speak, and we typically talk about the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 7, he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus is putting a premium on hearing God's word and people implementing that into their lives. Now look at Revelation chapter 22. You have in Matthew, the very first book of the Bible, emphasis on obedience. And then in the book of Revelation in chapter 22, the last chapter of the last book of the New Testament. And do you know what God says in that last chapter, the last book? Blessed are those that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and enter through the gates into the city, I have to understand that there are commandments that God has given that I must honor. Sometimes we say there are facts that must be believed, commandments that must be obeyed, and promises that must be enjoyed. I think that's true. So when I read and study and meditate on this truth, those are some of the things that emerge out of my study. And then thirdly, in verse 3, the productivity of a believer. Here's what he said, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also, also shall not wither. And he said, whatever he does shall prosper. The beauty of a Christian life is it is a process. I think about how we are developing. And really there is a transformation that occurs. 
When we become children of God, one of the things that we do is put to death that old, that old person. And as Paul said, we rise to walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul would say, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So I'm a new person. I've got a fresh start in life. And I have to understand that as a child of God, I am a work in progress. My life is developing. And my life, hopefully and prayerfully, is becoming more and more in tune with the will of God and the Word of God. So it's, it's, a, it's a process of development. So think with me for just a moment, if you would, about the productivity of a saint. He said that somebody whose life is rooted in God and rooted in His Word is going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. I think about the productivity that comes by being in a place where there is a reservoir of water where those roots can be nourished by the same token. If a tree, a plant, has the right ingredients, you know what's going to happen? It's going to produce fruit, isn't it? It's going to be productive as a child of God. What the Bible says is we're to be productive. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so you shall be my disciples. How do I bear fruit in the Christian life? A number of ways. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. I have the opportunity to preach, to teach, to tell others about Jesus. In so doing, I can bring forth fruit for the Master, for the Lord Jesus Christ. When I engage in helping other people, Paul said, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. When I try to alleviate the burdens and the hurts of other people. What am I doing? I'm producing fruit in the kingdom of God. When I live a holy life, what am I doing? I'm producing fruit in my Christian life. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, What fruit had you in those things which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But he said, You now have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And then I think about when I help others financially, materially speaking, Paul said, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially those who are of the household of faith. And then there is the perpetuity of a saint. Two things very quickly here. First, as a child of God, my life ought to be marked by consistency. In other words, I ought to be the same day in and day out. Now, sometimes we talk about putting on our, our church clothes. We get up on Monday morning, we put on our work clothes. We get up on Saturday morning and we put on our clothes that are going to be used to work outside or whatever. Please listen very carefully. When it comes to Christianity, it's not like that. You don't put on the life of a Christian on Sunday, take it off Sunday night, pick it back up the next Sunday. It doesn't work like that. My life is to be consistent. My behavior is to be consistent day in and day out. Here's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let no one despise your youth, 
Be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, he said, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Timothy, you show people what it means to be a New Testament Christian. You don't do that just one day a week. One day a week. You do it seven days a week, 24-7. It's a lifestyle. And so first, my life is to be marked by consistency and then constancy. The idea here is that I'm reliable. I'm faithful. I'm what God would have me to be. I want to ask you a question. Are you faithful? Is there consistency in your life and is there a sense of constancy in your life? Are you faithful day in and day out? Are you what the Lord had in mind in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 when it said be faithful until death? Do you meet that criteria? If you have an automobile and that automobile starts today and doesn't start tomorrow and starts today, doesn't start the next day, what would you say about it? Reliable? Unreliable. Trustworthy? Untrustworthy. Most of us would say it's untrustworthy, not reliable. I want an automobile that I can depend upon, that I can get in it and I can go wherever I want to go. I don't have to worry about it. By the same token, God wants us to be people of constancy, reliability. Here's what Paul said, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. And then very quickly, the prosperity of a saint. He said, he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. True success is rooted in a relationship that we develop with the Lord and His Word. There are a lot of folks that have a lot, of, they have a lot to say about how you can be successful in life. Here's what God said to Joshua when he replaced Moses as the leader of the children of Israel. He instructed him with regard to this book that we call Scripture. He said, do not let this book depart out of your mouth. But he said, you meditate in it day and night. And then here's what he said. You observe all that's written in it. And then you will prosper wherever you go. And then you will have success. Note, if you would, the correlation. You honor the Word of God, you'll have prosperity. You honor the Word of God, you'll have success. What's the implication? You don't do that, you're not going to have prosperity and success in life. The psalmist that was blessed and on that blessed road... He was prospering, prospering because he was walking within the framework of the will of God. I want to encourage you tonight, if you're not a Christian, to come to Christ believing that Jesus is the Son of God. That's where it all begins, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, repenting of sin, confessing His name, and then being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38. When we do that, the Bible tells us God adds us to the church, Acts 2.47. When we live a faithful life, the promise is the crown of life, James 1.12. When we stumble and fall, we're encouraged 
to repent, acknowledge our wrongdoing, and the Bible says He's faithful and just to forgive us. Whatever your need may be tonight, we urge you to come as we stand and sing.